Well, good morning again. So good to be with you this morning and uh, with the Lord's people on, on His day, worshiping uh, Him uh, for His glory alone. Uh, we are back in the book of Mark again today as we uh, plod on to Easter and uh, the closing of this book and, and the story of, of Christ's life, ministry, and passion, and also remembering those disciples that are always following Him, right? We learned so much about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus just by watching these guys walk, seeing how we're also reflected in in their characteristic, but then seeing how the Lord is using them and changing them uh, all for his glory and for his purposes for the gospel mission. Uh, This morning, as you turn to Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 52 here this morning. Uh, The title of this sermon is uh, The Falling Away. And as you're turning there, I want to I ask you about the last time that you experienced pain, the last time that you experienced like physical pain, maybe, maybe from an injury or a sickness or some kind of a, a disease or some kind of chronic condition, whatever it may be. Think about that pain. Uh, think about the worst pain you ever had. And try to give it a rating out of 1 to 10. I know doctors kind of do that. I'm probably not following their system, so don't judge me this morning. But number it from 1 to 10. So uh, like a 1 might be a bruise, okay? Bruises hurt, especially if somebody comes and they press that bruise. Um, A 3 would be like muscle strain. A 5 maybe would be a migraine. A 7 would be like a broken bone. Uh, a nine would be giving birth, uh, and then ten, I say, would be like a really serious burn. And so, think about that greatest pain you've ever had, and what kind of a number would you give it? Anybody ever suffer from a level ten kind of a pain? Okay, we do have a burn victim over here. A level ten pain. Now, along with levels of pain, we use a lot of words to describe our pain. We use many different adjectives to describe uh, pain. We have dull pain, we have sharp pain, we have throbbing pain, we have sore pain, stabbing pain, achy pain, crippling pain. If you ever had to use an adjective to describe the greatest physical pain, what word would you use? Out of all the memories of physical pain that we can think of this morning, Would you ever describe your pain that you've experienced as agonizing, as torturous? How about excruciating? Anybody ever have excruciating pain? Well, the word excruciating came into use in about the year 1590. It comes from the Latin excruciatus, which means torture, torment. Now, as you break down that Latin word, the first part, ex, means out or from, and then cruciate literally means to crucify. So excruciating pain literally means pain caused by crucifixion. Now as we imagine Jesus being nailed to the cross, we would all agree the kind of pain that he suffered on the cross would definitely deserve its own adjective because it was torturous, it was agonizing, it was excruciating. Brothers and sisters, when we think of the pain of our Savior and what he went through for us, you know, we often think about the whipping and the beating and the nailing to the cross. We think about the scourging. 
we think about this excruciating physical pain. But was it all about the physical? In our text today, we're going to catch up with Jesus and his disciples. It's going to be the middle of the night. They just finished the Passover meal. Their stomachs are full. And now they're out at the Mount of Olives. Their eyes are tired and drooping. But for Jesus, sleeping is not an option. For Jesus, rest is not a possibility. For on this night, his painful passion begins. His sorrowful atonement for sin commences. So even though he hasn't received the nails yet, he hasn't received the scourging or the whipping or the beating, he begins to suffer the deepest internal, agonizing, emotional, excruciating pain. And even though his disciples are with him, he's really all alone. Even though he calls them to watch and pray, they close their eyes and sleep. Even though he calls them to follow him to the end, as he has through the whole Gospel of Mark, they're going to ultimately fall away. Because the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mark 14, verses 27 to 52. And Jesus said to them, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Lord, as we remember these pages of scripture before us, we remember the many who have died so that we can have this free and bold access to your holy, perfect, infallible, sufficient word. Lord, as we look back to the garden, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have for us. As your word is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, we pray for spiritual surgery today, that you would open us up, that you would uh, find areas inside us that need work, and that you, by your spirit, by your word, by your grace, will renew us, that you would bring repentance and faith, godly sorrow over sin, and the joy of the Lord that only comes through beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, today that as we open your words, you would move me aside and you would speak to your people, preach your word. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So as we just read, as Jesus here is suffering the deepest, agonizing, emotional pain for our sin, as he begins to face the cup of wrath from the Father, instead of watching and praying, his disciples are resting. His disciples are sleeping. They're giving way to the flesh until they ultimately fall away when the pressure is turned up. Friends, this is really insight into our own anthropology, right? Our own nature as humans, our own fallen nature, that although the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Friends, as, as the disciples model for us here what not to do, we need to learn from their failures to prepare our hearts for the day, days ahead. So looking to what they did by the spirit, by the word, we need to learn what we ought to do. Because the closer we get to Jesus, the harder it's going to get. Know that as truth. The closer you get to Christ, the harder it's going to get in this world. And that might be a, a, you know, opposing some message out there that you might be hearing, but the closer you get to the gospel and, and what the world thinks is, is, is controversial and, and different and archaic, the harder it's going to get for you. We see that here in the scriptures and so we ask ourselves as we prepare for this is like the disciples, are we going to fall asleep? Are we going to give up on prayer? And are we going to fall away? And so the first lesson from this that we need to learn this morning is this. Suspect your best intentions. Suspect your best intentions. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter speaks up, as he often does. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. 
And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. But then Peter responds emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same. So friends, we, we often speak so boldly. We, sp- we speak courageously. But when the heat gets cranked up and the pressure is on, do we stand our ground? Are you standing today on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you holding fast to Christ? Are you testifying to his truth or are you shying away? Are you leaving the controversial situation and are you denying him before others and falling away? Jesus says to his disciples in verse 27, you will all fall away. To fall away uh, in the Greek is the word skandalizo. It's where we get the word scandalize, scandal. And the sense that Mark is using it here means to stumble and fall in such a way to reject somebody. And Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to fall away. We have to remember also that the disciples just witnessed at the Lord's Supper, remember Jesus calls out Judas as a betrayer, as an imposter, and sends him out. And now Jesus is turning to the 11, and he's saying to them, you're all going to reject me. You're all going to fall away. And then he even connects the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to back it up. He quotes Zechariah 13:7, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He's about to be struck, and his sheep are about to be scattered. And so as the pressure is being cranked up in Christ's final hours, he's saying to his closest confidants, to his 11 disciples, that instead of holding fast to him, they're going to leave him. They're going to stumble, and they're going to reject him before men. Each and every one of them. Now, you and I live in a secular world. Every day we rub shoulders with the lost. People far from Christ. So whether we're at work or whether we're at school, whether we're at the grocery store or Starbucks, wherever, we're constantly being faced with potential conversations and encounters where we have the opportunity to stand with Jesus in a world that hates him. When Jesus says to his disciples, he's also saying to us in many ways, you will all fall away. I will fall away. And it's true. You and I all fall away at times. Just think about the past year. Just think about maybe some recent experiences that you have. Maybe somebody's you know, slamming Christianity, slamming the name of Christ. You're overhearing this. Maybe there's a conversation at work that, that turns uncomfortable. It turns immoral. Maybe, maybe your family or a friend is, is ridiculing you for your faith, but instead of standing with Christ in those situations, you choose to be quiet. You don't want to cause a disturbance. You don't want to lose your friends. You definitely don't want to look weird. In that moment when the pressure is on, friends, we fall away. 
we fall away. Like the disciples are going to fall away. As Jesus gets closer to the cross, the disciples are going to scatter. And this, and this goes on until Jesus rises from the grave. He hints this in verse 28. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So this is a temporary falling away. This isn't, this isn't losing salvation. Right? This is falling away from uh, the eyewitness and the testimony to stand with Jesus in, in, in the hard things. And Peter responds to Christ. He says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Right? Peter can't believe that Jesus actually thinks this about him. Like he knows, like those other guys, for sure, right? I could see how you're second-guessing them. But, but Jesus, this is Peter. This is your rock. I'm not going to fall away. Jesus says, you will all fall away. Peter says, they will all fall away. I will not. You guys ever say that to God? Like, I'm not going to fail this time, Lord. I'm not going to fall back into that sin again, Lord. I'm with you to the end. And then you try harder in the flesh. You try to stop that sin. You grit your teeth. You pull up your bootstraps. And you determine that this time I am going to beat this thing. But then you find yourself back there again. This is what Peter's doing here. He's putting a lot of stock into his own ability to stand. But Jesus says to Peter, and it's to Peter's surprise, verse 30, he's, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And friends, we know the outcome of this story. We're going to study this later at the end of chapter 14 uh, to come. But we know the outcome of this. To Peter's shock and despair, in that coming moment, Peter actually denies Jesus three times before men. But at this very moment in the scriptures, Peter cannot believe that that's going to happen. That's not his heart right now. He believes that no matter how hard it gets, if the others all fall away, he's going to be the one left standing with Jesus. That's why he says in verse 31, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Lord, I will die for you. Peter was overconfident. He was naive. And he was trusting far too much in his own ability. And as he just vocalizes that, if I must die with you, I will not deny with you, the rest of the disciples join him and say the same thing. If we must die, we will not deny you. Bold words, only to be proven wrong in a matter of hours. Let me ask you, if, if a newscaster, say Global News was to stop you downtown in the street this week, and they were to ask you about this new conversion therapy ban going on that's coming into, into law, how would you respond to that on live television? What would you say? Where would you stand? Let's say a, a friend at work said they respect your beliefs as one of many ways to get to heaven. How are you going to respond to that? Or to the extreme, let's say you have to go work in a foreign country. It's a closed country. Somebody kidnaps you, puts a gun to your head, and tell you to, they ask you to deny Jesus. What are you going to do? 
Friends, we can claim all kinds of bold loyalty, loyalty, but when the rubber hits the road and the pressure gets real, how do you think you're going to respond? When it comes to standing with Jesus, we need to suspect our best intentions. And what I mean by that is we need to be aware of our fleshly pride. We need to not overestimate our ability to stand in our own strength. You need to stop believing in yourself. Stop exalting yourself. Reject your pride. Reject your own strength. You need to confess your weakness always to the Lord and then stand in the strength that comes from God alone because you don't have any. Peter himself, he learns this lesson in life. Fast forward to his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 6. He writes, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you want to stand in the hardest moments for Christ, with Christ, we need to first suspect our best intentions. Be a little wary of your own strength. You don't have any. Friends, we are weak. We are going to fail. That doesn't mean that we accept it. We expect it to some level, but we need to stand in the strength that the Spirit provides, not our own strength. And then along with that, as we move to verse 32, we need to remember the excruciating cost. Remember the excruciating cost. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, And Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This place called Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. It's, it's a, considered to be a private garden. Uh, it would have been a garden of olive trees. It would have been uh, known in, uh, to by, or owned by someone who, who knew Jesus. Uh, and in that, in that olive grove, there would have been a, uh, an oil press, an olive press for making olive oil. In fact, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And it's not by chance that at this place, this is where Jesus begins to experience the weight of the coming wrath of the Father being pressed on him. And he starts to feel the immense pressure of the coming judgment for your sins and for mine upon his shoulders. John 18.2 reveals that Gethsemane was kind of a rendezvous point for the disciples. It's where they would meet up, but it's also where they would sleep. If you remember, all the craziness of the Passover, the population in Jerusalem would triple. And so there's no room in the city for people to sleep, so people would have to go outside the city. And so the same with Jesus and his disciples. They would sleep here in Gethsemane. And so as Jesus brings his disciples to Gethsemane, to the oil press. It was the middle of the night, and they naturally thought it was time to sleep. 
But for Christ, it was just the beginning. And so he tells eight of his disciples to, to sit here while I pray. And then he takes his inner three. Remember, Jesus often took his, his smaller group of men, these three, Peter, James, and John. Right? Lots to learn from that, molding for us discipleship. And he takes them away so that he, they'll be with him and they're going to watch him and they're going to see him pray. Again, the priority of prayer. The text says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The word greatly distressed here is extambeo, which is in the sense that it's being used is to be alarmed. Greatly distressed, alarmed or astounded by the pain, by the distress. Like Jesus wasn't expecting it to be so hard already. Now remember, he hasn't been arrested yet. He hasn't been beaten yet. He hasn't been crucified yet. But here we see him already experiencing deep, surprising anguish like he has never experienced before. And in his deepest anguish, he confesses to his disciples how extremely hard it is. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, that's deeply grieved, deeply saddened, even to death. The weight of the oil press, of God's coming wrath upon Christ, is upon him at that very moment. Jesus is looking forward to what the Lord is going to do, the Father is going to do, and Jesus is finding it surprisingly terrifying. It was too much for him to take at that moment. He was overwhelmed in that moment. He was saddened by it. He was burdened by what is going to happen. And he felt at that very moment that it's going to kill him right now. Even to the point of death, he says. As much as Jesus knew, the coming beating, the lashings, the scourging, and the crucifixion, how it was going to be horrifyingly hard. What he was going through at this very moment was killing him. It was the beginning of his death. John MacArthur says, the agony and astonishment that overcame Jesus in the garden was infinitely beyond any of those things. His grief was fueled, first and foremost, by the recognition that he would soon become the bearer of sin and the object of divine wrath. For the first time in all eternity, he would experience alienation from his father, being crushed by him as a guilt offering for sinners. The, the reality of it was nearly too much for even Jesus to survive. As you think about your Savior, we often think about him suffering on the cross, and that's, that's good. We need to focus on that. Last week we focused a lot about that, but we cannot forget his terrifying anguish in the garden. This was, this was not easy at all. This was the hardest thing that Jesus had experienced up to this point in his life, and so that's why he tells his disciples, I'm sorrowful, very sorrowful, even to death. And then he tells them to remain here and watch. He has to get alone. He has to get by himself with the Lord. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground 
and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says to God the Father, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, we see emphasis on the urgency of prayer. Jesus gets away, gets by himself, falls on his face and prays. Even though Jesus is God, within the the sovereign head of the Trinity, within the sovereign Trinitarian God, in his condescension to humanity, like us, Jesus has to go to the Father through prayer. The darker that it gets, the tougher that it gets, the more distressing that it becomes, the further Jesus has to press into prayer. In Luke's gospel, Luke twenty-two forty-four, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. More agony, more earnest prayer. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Remember, Luke is a doctor. He's highlighting the sweat becoming like great drops of blood. In his gospel, the suffering was so severe that Christ was actually sweating drops of blood. This is a real thing. I don't want to butcher how to say this, but it's called hematridosis. It happens when extreme anguish, internal anguish, can cause capillary blood vessels to rupture inside of you, to rupture internally, and it ends up mixing with sweat. This is a real thing. Jesus was literally sweating Blood, that's how much he was in deep sorrow. That's how much he was anguishing inside. And so we see him getting alone with God. He falls on his face in prayer and he asks his father in that deep anguish that if it were possible, that this hour would pass him. That this time of suffering might pass him. Because he can't take it. It's too hard already. It's going to kill me, even to the point of death. We have to remember that although Jesus was 100% God, he was 100% man. And in his humanity, he faced the same temptations that we face, right? Hebrews 4 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, in this very moment, Jesus was so overwhelmed with this excruciating internal sorrow and grief that if there was any way out, he was asking for it. That's why he cries to his father, Abba, Daddy, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He knows all things are possible for his father. I mean, he taught this over and over again through his ministry, right? Remember back to chapter 9 in Mark, 
When a loving father brings his mute son, he's a demon-possessed son, he wants him to be healed. And, and this exhausted, loving father says to Jesus in Mark twenty-two twenty-three, 23, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Remember also when Jesus was teaching that a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. And his disciples respond in astonishment, then who can be saved? How did Jesus respond to them there in Mark 10, 27? With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. If you can, then who can? And even Jesus, in his humanity, in this moment, facing temptation, says to his Father, if it's possible. Let this hour pass me. And then he cries out in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So we see him crying out to God, if it's possible, and then we see him reminding himself of the truth. All things are possible with God. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's saying to God, I can't take it, Father, but whatever your will is, I'm willing to, to follow that. Your will, God, not my will. The harder it got, the harder he prayed. When you're facing temptation, you need to go to prayer. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus modeled this for us. Isaiah 53.10. We read this already. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus knew it was the will of the Father to crush him. To crush him like olives in a press for the sins of the world. You know, as we aim to be faithful followers of Jesus, as we desire, like the disciples did, they desired to stand for Christ, no matter how hard it gets, we need to remember the excruciating cost. That although Jesus wasn't arrested yet, although he wasn't beaten yet, although he wasn't crucified yet, the suffering in the garden was horrifyingly surprising, even for our Savior. We have to remember his deep sorrow over our sin and knowing what the Lord, what the Father had to do because of our sin. We have to remember his sweat drops of blood. We have to remember his temptation for belief or for relief. But ultimately, what we need to remember is his submission to God's will. We remember the love he has for us. We remember the love that he had for his father. And this should drive us all the more to stand for him. Like, like if my God is willing to come down from heaven, to put on flesh for me and suffer the horrifying wrath of God that I deserve, how can I not stand for him? How can I not live for him alone? How can I not testify to the truth no matter what comes my way? 
the more that we remember his sufferings, the more our hands, our feet, and our mouths are going to be emboldened for the gospel. Gethsemane was the oil press. It was the oil press where God the Father began to squeeze the life out of Christ. And he did that out of love for you and for me. Now as Christ is praying amidst this extreme suffering, let's remember that he left the eight in the beginning of the garden. He told them to sit while he prayed. And then he told the inner three, Peter, James, and John, he told them to remain and watch. He told them to sit. He told them to watch. He told them to remain. He didn't tell them to lay down and go to sleep. He expected them to be awake. He expected them to be watching. But in verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, pleading with God to, to remove the cup. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to, him, said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? If you want to stand with Jesus to the end, we need to, pray, we need to fight with prayerful fervency. Now as all this is taking place, remember this is all taking place in the early hours of the morning. Sometime between uh, 1 a.m., 3 a.m. likely. It was after the Passover meal that would usually go uh, past midnight, but before the rooster crows three times. It's somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. And, and these guys, these disciples, they're going to be tired. Jesus is going to be tired. If anybody knows me well, they know that after 9 p.m., my eyes just glaze over, and I am dreaming about my pillow. I've always been like this. When I was a teenager, uh, my parents had some friends and they asked me to babysit their kids. And so when I showed up, their kids were already in bed. Uh, the parents go out, I sit on the couch, turn on the TV, and it didn't take me long to be asleep. What I didn't know was that while I was sleeping, the youngest kid woke up. He might have been about five years old and he got up and he was upset and he tried to wake me, but I was fast asleep. Needless to say, I wasn't asked to babysit for them again. <laughs> you asked my wife, when we were dating, it would have been a miracle if I made it through a movie. And so I get it. These guys are tired. When I think of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., I mean, that is like, that's not my time. I'm not shining then. I would have been the first disciple to curl up next to the olive, pl olive place and start sawing logs. The disciples knew this place in Gethsemane as a place to go and sleep. 
And that's exactly what they were used to doing. Except this time, Jesus didn't want them to be sleeping. He told them to sit. He told them to wait. He wanted them to be watching, to be praying. But in their flesh, they disobeyed. In their humanity, they failed. Notice what Jesus calls Peter. He calls him Simon. Remember, Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. He is the rock. But Jesus here refers to his old name, pointing to his old ways. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And then he commands him again, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Right? As Jesus himself is praying through his own temptation, his disciples need to be praying all the more through their own temptation. Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is reminding the disciples that their strength is not going to be found within themselves. Their strength has to come from above. It's more than just human will. They need divine power. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, verse 42 says, gives us a little more insight here. It says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, is if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, Jesus is praying through temptation, going to the father. Will you remove that cup? Not my will, but yours, God. And then in verse 40 in our text, it says, again, he came and found them sleeping. Why? Because their eyes were very heavy. They did not know how to answer him. And then Jesus goes again for a third time and prays. And then he comes back and sees that they're all sleeping again. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? As Jesus told them at the very beginning that they would all fall away, in this case, they're falling asleep. They're choosing the material, they're choosing the spiritual, they're choosing their flesh over him. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As we remember the excruciating cost, like the disciples, are we sleeping when we should be watching, when we should be praying? As Jesus models the way to battle temptation, the tool he gives us is prayer. Are we succumbing to the flesh rather than fighting our battles through prayer? Three times we see Jesus checking on his disciples, and three times he finds them sleeping. That's three strikes. They're getting a big fat zero on their discipleship test here. But then we ask ourselves, how about us? When it comes to standing with Jesus, are we giving up when the temptation comes? Are we just rolling over and giving in? Or are we fighting our temptations like Jesus through prayer? Just think about it. If Jesus needed to pray through temptation, how much more do we need to be praying through temptation? 
If you're constantly losing the battle, if you're regularly falling into the trap of sin, you need to heed God's words here. You need to heed the words of Christ. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That means no passive sleeping, but active seeking, active praying because the spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is weak. If you're trying to battle your sin in your own strength, in your own flesh, you are going to lose. You're going to fail again and again and again. Friends, you and I need divine power. We need spiritual strength because who is willing? The Spirit is willing. Our flesh is weak. So are we watching or are we sleeping? Again, we see Jesus singling out Peter here. And again, Peter, we know, learns this lesson. right? Not in this moment. But later in life, right, as he's writing his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 8, what does he say? He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter got it in the end. But this comes straight from our Savior. It's the best advice that we can ever have in the area of temptation. Pray. Pray to the Lord. Seek the strength of the Spirit. Fight with prayerful fervency. So even though the disciples had good intentions, they failed to watch and learn. They failed to stay awake and pray. And finally, they failed to to stay at all. If you want to stand with Jesus, you need to follow with fearless devotion. Verse 41, Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He wakes up his sleepy disciples saying, in verse 42, rise, let us be going. Enough sleeping. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then immediately, you know, Mark's gospel, constantly using the word immediately, the urgency While he was still speaking, Judas came, the betrayer, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Remember when Judas uh, left the Lord's Supper, when when Jesus uh, singled him out, he goes and he makes a deal with the chief priests who want Jesus dead. They don't want to cause a disturbance, but they want Jesus dead. And Judas agrees to tell them where Jesus is going to be. He knows the rendezvous point. And he betrays Jesus, makes a deal for 40 pieces of silver. Verse 44, Now the betrayer Judas had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, with false affection here, Rabbi, you know, that's an affectionate, Uh, response to your teacher. 
Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Who was that? Surprise, surprise, it's Peter. In fact, John's gospel reveals that it was Peter. Right? If, if this was a movie, we'd all be cheering. Way to go, Peter. Go get him. And as much as we, we admire Peter's bravery and his boldness here, Jesus stops him. Jesus rebukes him. And then we also know from the other gospels that, that he heals this servant's ear. Right? Jesus didn't need anybody defending him. In fact, he tells Peter in, in, in Matthew's gospel, verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 52 to 54, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus doesn't need Peter to defend him. The Lord is on his side. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So what looked so valiant, what looked so brave, was actually getting in the way of God's will. Jesus didn't need defending. Jesus wanted the Father's will. And what he wanted from his, his disciples was to be followed, right? Follow me. And then verse 48, Jesus said to them, says to the chief priest and, and to this mob with, with the clubs and the swords, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Friends, the whole Old Testament was, all, was pointing forward to this day, was pointing forward to this time. Remember from last week that blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins, right? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, had to be slaughtered, and now it was time. Jesus said, enough, the hour has come. Now the time is here. The suffering servant must go to the cross. And he goes there willingly. We better not be getting in his way. The Old Testament scriptures testify to this. Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There is no need for clubs and swords. Jesus is saying, the hour has come. I'm willingly going. Just take me. And so he was arrested. He was led away towards judgment. And his disciples, what did they do? Do they continue following him? The text says, they all left him and fled. They all left him. These disciples who followed Jesus up to this point, already through thick and thin, were all of a sudden gone. They were afraid. And the perfectly fulfilled prediction Jesus made at the beginning of this section today, right? He said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's coming true. Verse 27, you will all fall away, he said, right? And they did. They left him. 
Even this young man in verse 51, who most scholars think is John Mark, the author of this gospel under the direction of Peter. Verse 51, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a humble way to write yourself into the story. Just think about that. Like, What a shameful way to write yourself in. He ran away as well. But that's what the flesh does. Instead of standing with Christ, we flee the situation. Instead of being arrested with him, we run away in shame and hide. If we want to stand with Jesus, we need to follow him with fearless devotion. As the disciples trusted in their good intentions, as they failed to watch and learn, as they failed to stay awake and pray, when the going got really tough in the end, when the rubber hit the road, and friends, if you and I were one of these 11 disciples, we would have done the same thing. Because it's our nature. As we operate in the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the good news is that in light of our weakness, in light of our fallenness, who is strong? Jesus is strong. In light of our trusting in the flesh, Jesus was trusting in what? He's trusting in the will of the Father. In light of our sleepy prayerlessness, Jesus models faithful prayerlessness. That when the harder it gets, the more that I go to prayer. In light of our shameful fleeing, like these disciples, Jesus does what? He goes willingly. There's no need for swords and clubs. I'm going to that cross willingly. Don't get in the way. Where we fail, Christ prevailed. That's the testimony of the scriptures. When you look at humanity to the scriptures, we're constantly failing. When you look at Israel in the Old Testament, they're constantly failing. But Jesus prevails where we fail. That's our Savior. That's our God. So if you want to stand with Jesus, again, as you're informed by the scriptures, as you're motivated by grace, as you're seeking God's glory, as you're strengthened by his spirit alone, you need to suspect your best intentions. You need to remember the excruciating cost. And you need to fight with prayerful fervency. And you need to follow with fearless devotion. Let's pray.